the ordinance of baptism and the ordinance of the Lord's table is highly ignored today. Uh, The significance of baptism and the significance of the Lord's table, my observation has been since ministry, is that men and women don't understand its relevance or its importance. And so, like today, we are having baptisms, and, and most of the members of grace know how we do it. And people will absent themselves from baptism, when baptism is a witness to not only the world, but to the angels. And the people of God should always be assembled at baptism. And people of God absent themselves from the Lord's table as well, when both of those ordinances are grand emblems of the grounds upon which we have been accepted, not only in the beloved, but in the kingdom of God. And so I know my generation has not been taught well about the first principles of salvation because we are just so absurdly self-centered. So what I'm going to ask you to do today, unless you just have an emergency like your pants are on fire, your house is burning down, is to stay through the baptisms and bear record of the truth. Every baptism ever done since the days of our Lord Jesus Christ is a testimony of the reality of who he is and who he was and what he did. Every baptism done properly and appropriately, as I'll be talking about here in a moment, and I won't be super long because half of our message will be in what they do. Every baptism engaged in fraudulently, um, in a ill-mannered way will be a condemnation to those persons coming to the water as it is with the Lord's table. When men and women say I do to Jesus, it's as if you are getting married. And when you say I do to Jesus, he doesn't say I do to you. You're saying it because he already said I do. Baptism in the Lord's table is a response to Christ's love for you to lay down his life. So let's just walk through these ordinances one more time. And we've been privileged for so many years to do this, have we not? Uh, You don't find it often done in communities. I remember years ago being in different churches and we wouldn't see baptisms for years. And the reason that you don't is because churches don't preach Christ. They don't preach the gospel. They don't explain the supremacy and centrality of Jesus. Jesus is the reason men and women come to God. No man can come unto the Father apart from Christ. And where the gospel is not preached, the soul is not tugged upon by the Holy Ghost to leave hell and take their position with God in glory. And that's what baptism teaches. Now, you have an outline in front of you, you really do, and I want you to walk with me through your outline. These points are fairly succinct and clear. I'll touch on them uh, to some small degree at every point under point number one, the glorious baptism of Christ himself, the glorious baptism of Christ himself. Contrary to many notions, baptism is a doctrine that runs all the way through the Bible. Contrary to most notions, Baptism is a doctrine that runs from Genesis to Revelation. I will give you two verses to underscore what I mean by that. What we mean by baptism being an archetypal symbol or emblem of entrance into the kingdom of God 
is that there is no one in heaven that is not there because they are a sinner. Let me reframe that. There's no one in heaven but sinners. Heaven is not for the righteous. It's not for good people. It's not even for almost good people. No one goes to heaven but sinners. And the gospel is a sinner's gospel. It's for men and women who have had a radical revelation of who they really are apart from Christ. And then a second revelation of who they really are in the person of Jesus. Such people will come to the waters of Jordan as it was in our text in the days in which the Old Testament was still in prominent function. Jesus was born under the Old Covenant. John the Baptist was born under the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant is the context of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are not the New Covenant. There was nothing done throughout the life of Jesus that was not done in the context of the Old Covenant. The New Covenant was established when he died on the cross and said, it is finished. But by then, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are done, are they not? So the great mystery in baptism in the Gospels is this. When Jesus came, he brought the spirit of the New Testament with him so that men and women were operating out of New Testament principles and privileges and blessings while being under the old covenant. When you read Matthew chapter four, what you're reading is John the Baptist's fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy in chapter three, verse one. God says, I will send my messenger before the face of the Lord. What's his name? John the Baptist. And what was John the Baptist doing? Well, (laughs) baptizing. That's what he was doing. That's what you read in Matthew chapter one through seven. John was baptizing and everybody was coming to who? John. And they were coming to John, not in the temple, but at Jordan. And this is what I've been teaching my men for years. John the Baptist was rightly a Levitical priest. He should have been functioning in the temple along with the rest of those frauds and crooks, but he was a real believer and he wouldn't touch false religion. And God set him up to be the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets as spoken by our Lord. John was the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. Why? Because John was the one that bridged the gap between the old and the new, preparing men and women for him who would come, consummate the old, establish the new, and bring everybody into the blessings of the gospel of grace. That's what Matthew does for us in terms of the event here. Astonishing portions of scripture. And the rulers of the established church didn't like John, did they? The rulers of the established church didn't like Jesus, did they? Because they both preached a gospel that did not tell men and women, unless you come through the church, you can't be saved. They both preached a gospel of God that called men and women to God apart from works and apart from religion. Imagine the ministry of John the Baptist. You guys remember how he dressed? 
I mean, Facebook, Twitter and all those other news agencies would be making a mockery of him today. And yet he was the most precious saint in that first century anyone could know. He had such a high view of God that as Jeremiah put it in Jeremiah chapter 15, Lord, I did not sit in the assembly with mockers. You know, I didn't come to church to play games with you. John the Baptist, therefore, was highly lauded by his cousin Jesus, was he not? No greater prophet, Jesus said, than John the Baptist. And the reason is going to be clear as we work it through, as we deal with the first point, the glorious baptism of Christ, what? Himself. Christ himself. We are focusing on a man who in every human right did not need to be baptized. We're focusing on a person by every human and divine standard, had no reason to come to the waters of baptism. I just taught you, didn't I, that men and women only go to heaven because they recognize that they are what? Sinners. Baptism is about recognizing what you are apart from Christ and what you can be only in Christ. And yet we have a paradox here, do we not, children of God? The only person in the universe who never sinned is coming to the waters of baptism as if he is a sinner. Oh, how glorious Jesus is. This is why we warn everybody in the world, there's no God like our God. There is no gospel like our gospel. There's no one that has done what God has done for human beings as the father did in his son Jesus. And whenever Jesus moves, you and I want to see him. That's what John said. We beheld his glory, the glory of humbling himself and coming into this wretched world. The only pure thing in the universe ever to exist after the fall of Adam was Jesus. And Jesus is now coming to these filthy waters of Jordan to join thousands of men and women who have already come to those waters. And this is what we mean that the gospel is a what kind of gospel? A sinner's gospel. Now, let me just grip you with what's going on. Why do we need to go down to a river to do baptism? In one sense is because there were so many people that came to John. In another sense, it's because the the very term baptism must be understood for what it is. I will not get into debates because I don't have time for it with our churches. But our churches love the Mossad scripture and get around very clear meaning in the text, particularly when we go into party spirits and become different denominations here, there and other places. And then you have all kind of weird things going on where they call it baptism. Whenever you see somebody take a little water and sprinkle it, sprinkle it on somebody, please know this. That is not baptism. You must know that because baptism embodies so much about what Christ went through. We dare not change the form to accommodate men when the reality is in the modality of baptism. I love it. Revelation chapter 19 verse 13 tells us about our man of war, Jesus. You know, Jesus is a man of war. The Lord is a man of war. Exodus 15. You guys remember that? Well, Exodus 15 is a baptism, is it not? How did Israel come out of Egypt? Through a baptism. 
And in Revelation chapter 19, verse 13, as soon as they get it up there, I want you to see a term. And he, that is Jesus, the one that sat on a white horse, he was clothed with a what? Vesture, like a vest I have on now. It is a symbol of his role as high priest. But he was not a Levitical priest. He was not an Aaronic priest. He was Melchizedek himself. He was the infinite, eternal high priest of all God's people of all time. And he's wearing a vest. And the Bible says his vest was what? Dipped, dipped, not sprinkled, not poured upon, dipped in blood. There you have the center and grounds and meaning of baptism. It is our root word bapto, and it means to immerse, to take the object and place it in the subject so completely that when the object comes out of the subject, the object looks just like the subject because the subject laid down his life for the object. This is what makes baptism glorious And I'm always absolutely elated when I have an opportunity to be a mediator of it because God is glorified in this ordinance. What love God had for us that he would pour out his life and create a fart for sinners to come and wash and be clean. Acts chapter 22 verse 16 tells us this immersion process has an efficacy. You know what it does symbolically? It washes away your sins. Baptism is a symbol of the washing away of your sins. Listen to how Paul was told by uh, the Lord himself through Ananias. And now why are you tarrying, Paul? Arise and be what? And do what? Wash away your sins as you call upon the name of the Lord. There it is. There is the efficacy emblemized in the baptism. You are symbolically telling everyone there is no way for your sins to be washed except for in the blood of the Lamb of God. This is because the doctrine of baptism carries many intrinsic, uh, unassailable, and non-negotiable doctrinal truths that, const- that constitutes the gospel. We're getting ready to look at them now. Let's learn just some things about the importance of the doctrine of baptism, starting with our Savior. He becomes our example, though he was not the first one to be baptized, because the first group of people that were baptized were the folks who died in Noah's day, when God baptized the whole world under his judgment, And only eight souls came out of that baptism in a resurrection of life called the Adams family too. And that was Noah and his eight souls. They came out washed and ready to start all over by the grace of God. Y'all keeping up with me? From that day, every time water was used, folks were scared and happy at the same time. The children of Israel were the second group of people to be baptized at the Red Sea. And yet the Egyptians tried to run in there and get baptized too. Found out that that water overwhelmed them and left them underneath the water. Now, baptism is not a drowning unless, of course, you don't know Jesus. If you don't know him, you will never rise again. You will stay in your sins and perish. And this is partially why I warned some about coming to the water. You come to the water because you want to make a show in the flesh. Do not come. 
you come to the water because you think you're trying to merit favor with God, do not come. If you don't come to the waters because God is drawing you, do not come. If you don't come to the waters because God has convinced you that you're a sinner, don't come. If you do not come to the waters because you can't help but come, don't come. As you're getting ready to say something that the world does not like. Point number one, Christ was separated unto God, evidenced by this baptism. Christ was separated unto God. Baptism signifies separation, saints. Separation. It is no coincidence that the New Testament has Jesus being baptized in chapter four because he was like the fatted calf that was raised up by his mother and stepfather to become the lamb that would take away our sins. Pure, holy, spotless, undefiled. But before he would take that role of being a lamb, he had to walk for three and a half years in obedience to his father. And just like you and I have to do the same thing we're going to learn here, Jesus came to the waters of baptism. And coming to the waters of baptism, he's telling everybody he's separated unto God. Baptism is separation unto God. Did you get that? It is separation unto God. It's not separation from things, it's separation unto him. And it's critical to know this is why what you read in the text of Matthew chapter three, verse 17 are these words. Matthew three, verse 17. Astonishing words and lo, a voice from heaven saying this is my what beloved son. I want you to mark that. And of course, God is happy with him. Of course, God is happy. This is the father speaking, is it not? It's a voice from where? From the throne of God. Look at the previous verse. Here we have learned this for many decades in the church, many centuries in the church. We are dealing with what is called the annunciation of Christ, his anointing. Heaven has opened up, which we all need. The father is speaking, which we all need to hear. And he's speaking about his son, is he not? And then finally, the third person called the Holy Ghost is coming down from heaven upon him. What a day for those people. See, this is how sometimes a normal practice to which the church is called can become a day of supernatural. See, they were coming to John getting baptized every day. They had no idea that one day God himself would come to be baptized. On this day is a marvelous day. Not only are they obeying John's call to prepare you the way, prepare you the way, make straight his paths. That's what happens when you're being baptized. We'll deal with that in a moment. But then here comes Jesus, the very one for whom they are preparing themselves. Notice what the text says. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went straightway up out of the water. So this means he has entered in. He has been immersed under. And now he's coming out of the water, is he not? Coming out of the water. And this is when heaven opens up and gives us an insight into the pleasure of God for Jesus identifying himself with sinners. See, God only speaks when Jesus comes up out of the water. Y'all got that? Look at the verse. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water. And lo, the heavens were opened unto who? And the heavens were opened unto who? Nobody else but Jesus. 
This is where we preach the the necessity of understanding you are not hearing the gospel if Christ is not preached. God's not talking to nobody except through Jesus. And your understanding of the word of God is utterly deficient if it doesn't show you that the father only speaks through the son. And so as the heavens are opening up unto Jesus, the text says, and he saw the spirit of God. Now, who saw him? Who else saw him? John. This is what Jesus will argue in John 5. I bear record of myself, but my father bears record of me also. And there's another that bears record of me. And his name was John the Baptist. Out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. Now, ladies and gentlemen, the joy of what I'm telling you now is really in a profoundly illuminating way, something that should be going on in your own heart as well. Even as I'm preaching, you guys, the men who are recipients of the water to come should also be experiencing what I'm talking about even now. They should be sensing a drawing of the third person to the second person because of a love of the first person. They should only be coming because there is a dynamic of the triune God touching their soul. Am I making some sense? That should be what's happening. And when I state that baptism is a separation, that's exactly what it is. Exodus chapter 4, 22. You remember Moses was told by God to go into Egypt and tell Pharaoh, let my what go? My people go. But in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, God said, let my firstborn son go. And that's because national Israel was a foreshadow of Jesus, who is the true Israel of God. Israel was a conduit for the coming of Jesus, was he not? So when Israel was brought out of Egypt, Israel was brought out of Egypt through water. In the same way Jesus is being brought out to the public through water. And so when that act occurs, separation is taking place, is it not? And you shall say unto Pharaoh, thus saith the Lord, Israel is my what? That's what we just read in Matthew 3, 17. Did we not? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. In other words, God is setting Jesus apart from everybody else in the world. You haven't heard God say that about you or me, not in ourselves. Not in ourselves, because God only has one ultimate begotten son who is ontologically the same with him. The rest of us are adopted children. Does that make some sense? Right. We have a slightly qualitatively difference between us and Jesus. And I'm glad about it, by the way. I'm glad Big Brother is qualitatively different than I am. Now, I get the benefit from the covenant. I get the benefit from being a son. I got the card. It's called grace through faith. I got the card. I'm a child of the living God. But all my hope is in my big brother who is holy and harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, pure, knew no sin, did no sin. In him was no sin at all. He was the spotless lamb of God. Mary had a little lamb whose fleece was white as snow. And everywhere the lamb did go, Mary was sure to follow. Let's get this thing right right now. Let's get it right. Okay. He's the one that separated unto God. That gives us hope. Point number two, Christ was sanctified for the obedience of faith. See, washing always means sanctification. 
It always means sanctification. We're going to give the folks who love to utter this colloquialism half credit, right? We're going to say, you know, cleanliness is close to godliness. We're going to give them a little credit, just a little bit, not a whole lot, right? Because what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood. So every other agent short of the blood of Christ doesn't make me more godly. Maybe religious, maybe self-righteous, but not more godly. Am I making some sense? So you might as well, you know, you can wash your hands before you eat if you want to, but God's not going to be more pleased with you whether you do or not. And y'all don't need to be fighting about washed hands. That's what the rulers did, did they not? Jesus and the disciples are walking down the road and they decide to eat some corn and the Pharisees run up on them. How come they didn't wash their hands? Sound like Dr. Fauci. How come they didn't wash their hands? <laughs> See, now when you're hungry, uh, little details like that don't matter, does it? When you're hungry, you're just going to grab something to eat. Is that right? Like little children do. Y'all know that, right? Little children just go for it. No, boy, stop. Go wash your hands. I hated that. Didn't you hate that? I'm hungry. And when the soul is hungry, the soul just goes after God. Dirty, filthy, rotten, it goes after God. Christ was sanctified for the obedience of faith. I want you to see that again in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. Just, just get it. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. Peter knew this intimately, as you know. Peter was way too close to the Lord, and it broke him. And I don't mean that in any kind of negative sense, but you get close enough to the Lord, and he's going to change your life. And a lot of people are not close enough to the Lord, and that's why their lives are not changed. You can't walk with Jesus without him breaking you. Jesus is going to break you and wash you and then build you back up. He's going to make you a disciple. Okay, you, you, Peter is a bad dude, but it's only because Jesus broke him and made him again. And now listen to what Peter says about Christ in 2 Peter chapter 1. Um, this is going to be setter, uh, let me see, 2 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, maybe verse 2. This one here is good, but this is not the one I want. Let me see if that's the case. Ah, here it is, elect. According to the foreknowledge of God, start at verse one for people that don't have a context, please. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the strangers scattered abroad through Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. Bithynia. Peter is speaking to the churches scattered abroad. And here's the first thing he calls them. He calls them separated and set apart by the term election. Look at verse two. Look at verse two. Verse two says elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. That's what you and I were. We were chosen in the foreknowledge of God. Did you know that? We didn't choose God. God what? Right. Honest people know that. By the time we said yes to God, he had already said yes to us before he made the world. Right. This is what I'm saying. When you say I do, it's only because he did. You can't say I do until he says I did. And when a man or a woman comes to Jesus, it's because we were placed in Christ before the world began. So that God marked us out to hunt us down and bring us to this glorious reality of who we are in Christ. I am not ashamed of the doctrine of election. You ought not either because Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 49 tells me Jesus is God's elect. And everybody that's in Jesus has to also be God's what? I'm chosen in him in him from the foundation of the world to be holy and spotless before him in love. You too. 
You too. I know you came to Jesus. I know you said yes, but it's after he drew you and it's after he said yes for you. Give him the credit for it. It's so true. It's so true. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. God's good. Our Heavenly Father is good. He provided for us before we had a being. He knew we would be wretched, just miserable, just toe up sinners, didn't he? He, he, The way he protected you and me was to place us in Christ before we came into the world. These folk going to tear up my world. Let me place some of them in Jesus so I can fix them on the way out. That's called a father that knows how to provide for his children. Thank you, father. Thank you. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God through there's the word sanctification. Every one of God's elect are sanctified. When he set you apart in Jesus, you were sanctified. You didn't know it. You didn't act like it, but it was so. The reason why you're here right now is because God has kept you all this time. Am I telling the truth? Yeah, the reason you and I are right here right now and happy about it too is because God has kept us. Now, some of y'all are not happy about what I'm saying, but you still may be chosen. I'm getting ready to baptize a young man in a few moments that I'm absolutely positive he was chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. But just a few years ago, he wasn't happy about this. There are a whole bunch of y'all that wasn't happy about my preaching a few years ago. Now you're as happy as can be. Yes, yes. I love it. I love it. God saves sinners. He will take you and break you and make you. Make you happy about saving him. I love it. Sanctification of the spirit. Now, notice we're dealing with two persons there. God the Father is first. Sanctification of the spirit is third. Now, look at this glorious reality. Unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood. That's what baptism is about. It's unto, you are directing your confession of faith unto the blood that Jesus paid, used, paid, shed for your sins. Y'all got that? And the blood is a sprinkling. The blood is a sprinkling clean of your heart and your conscience. That's the Old Testament hyssop principle. Y'all got that? Sprinkle me, Lord. Sprinkle me clean. It should be something that happens every time the gospel is preached. Preach, Because the blood never coagulates. The blood never clots. The blood is always warm. The blood is always fresh. The blood is always new. It can be dipped by the hyssop, by the hand of the Holy Ghost, and sprinkle many of you right now. Maybe even right now, some of you are being sprinkled by the blood of the Lamb. And by the spirit of the living God, so that you're going to be running up, Pastor, I'm ready. I'm ready to be baptized in Jesus' name. I'm ready to be baptized in Jesus' name and enter into the joy of the Lord. That's exactly right. The sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. You see the triune work there? There it is. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Let's go on to our third point. Our third point is Christ, therefore, in his glorious baptism, endured suffering of divine justice. Do you see it? He endured suffering of divine justice. He's going to make this plain that his baptism was about him suffering. In a sense, it's that way for us too. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 13. This is what it says. Listen to Hebrews 9, 13. This is what it says about his baptism. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctified to the purifying of the what? Now, now for, you to, for you that don't know this, this is only a, a description on a sacerdotal or a religious level 
of every animal that was slain and the blood was used to symbolically purge the people of God. In the Old Testament system of religion, there were sacrifices in the morning, there were sacrifices at noon, and there were sacrifices in the evening. The priest had to keep the blood being shed because you and I are sinners constantly. We're 24-hour-a-day sinners. Did y'all know that? Y'all sinning when you sleep. Did you know that? You're sinning when you sleep. And that's why the blood has to constantly be shed so he can cover you in your sleep. Some of us wake up and know we had a bad night. Did we have a bad night? And I do. And I'll wake him up. Oh, thank God for new mercies every day. Thank him for new mercies every day. And I'll wrestle through my dreams. I'll wrestle through my dreams. And I'll say, boy, them dreams ain't real. And if they were, they're paid for by the blood of the lamb. Get your tail on up and keep walking in Jesus. Name. This is how you overcome depression. This is how you overcome the battle of the mind. Please understand the only way you overcome it is by the blood of the lamb and the word of his testimony. That's how you overcome it. Yeah, see, God has bought your mind too. So you might as well have a conversation with him when your mind goes crazy. You know how it goes crazy all over the planet. God bought the planet. He bought your mind and he has given you a hyssop to sprinkle you clean as soon as you ask him. Lord, clean my, that's what David said, right? Purge me with hyssop. Purge me, oh God. David knew the remedy to crazy thinking is the blood of the lamb by the work of the spirit on the conscience of the mind. Now you got to believe that. It works. It really does. Now notice, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God. For those of us who are un, uh, a bashful Trinitarians, we see Trinity all over the Bible. Do you see it right there? Raise your hand if you see the triune work of God. See, when people say, ain't no Trinity in the Bible, you know what we say? You're blind. You're blind as a bat. And we're getting ready to get there because baptism is in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. There's one God revealed in three persons, which is a mystery and a conundrum for these crazy brains of ours. He's called a tri-personal God. The Father's God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, and they are one Lord. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, your Elohim is one Lord. Not one person, three divine persons who occupy one essence, one divine nature. Does that make sense? Well, then you're smarter than me. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God? Jesus, by the work of the spirit, offered himself to God. Now, if there is any application to be drawn out of baptism for you and me, that's it. We need the Spirit of God to help us be offered up to God. Jesus started it, and that work continues with every baptized person. Jesus needed the help of the Spirit, didn't he? That's what the baptism in Matthew 4 is about. He couldn't have gotten the work done that he did without the third person. This is why he constantly said, help me. On the day when he would lay down his life on the tree, he needed help, didn't he? Even the heavens opened up and angels came down and helped him, didn't he? How precious is our Lord to enter into the weakness of our human nature and experience that weakness to the point of calling on God for help. 
That's a secret for you. You want to you be able to deal with and overcome your trials, you better learn how to say, help, help, Lord, help, Lord. Some of y'all in trouble because y'all don't know how to spell H-E-L-P. Fourthly, not only did Christ endure suffering of divine justice, as our text said, Christ also obtained satisfaction of divine justice. Now, that's a theological term, too, that just needs slight, a slight interpretation. We'll see this in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, if you'll pull it up. Satisfaction is a theological term that means that God's anger is vitiated. God's anger is satisfied or atoned for or appeased by a sacrifice that meets the equivalence of God's wrath because of the sin or offense we committed. So when Isaiah says, by my righteous servant's knowledge, God shall be satisfied. It means that God puts to rest his wrath in his son because his son suffered under God's wrath in our behalf so that God's wrath does not come upon us. Does that make some sense? Right. So here's how he puts it. God set forth Jesus Christ to be a what? Propitiation. That is the word satisfaction. That is a sacrificial offering. He becomes the lamb that was slain. And whereas God should have slain you and slain me, he slew the lamb. And when he saw the blood poured out, symbolic of the total sacrifice of Christ's life, God was satisfied with Christ's sacrifice and he accrues the benefits of Christ's sacrifice to you and me by faith. And therefore God becomes satisfied with us. God will never be satisfied with you and me under any circumstance apart from us being in Christ. Does that make some sense? Right. And this is where we're learning on Tuesday and Friday how to rest in God. Are we not? We're learning how to let God be our judge because Christ is our savior. And because Christ is our savior, we don't have to judge ourselves anymore. Boy, how liberating that is. How see, because you're going to have all kind of other people judging you. But when Christ is your savior and your judgment has already fallen on him, the father's satisfied with you in Christ. And it doesn't matter if nobody else on the planet is satisfied with you. As long as daddy's satisfied with you, that's all that really matters. Now you're going to have to grow into that because people will be jealous because you're happy in Jesus. Have you ever met people that's mad because you're happy? Have you ever met them? They're mad because you're happy. They're mad because you're happy. And you need to tell them you're mad because you don't know the happiness that's in Christ. Come on Yeah. You're mad because you don't know the happiness in Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. You see how we're still at the blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of Christ. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Christ shed his blood. Sins are remitted. Forgiveness is given. And you and I can walk in the freedom of grace through faith when we believe that. That's what this is teaching. Finally, under our fifth point, under the glorious baptism of Christ himself, and this must be absolutely clearly stated, Christ became the substitute for sinners. Do you see it? Christ became the substitute for sinners. We'll look at it in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 through 25. I'll walk you through that quickly. And please understand this. 
Because again, my generation totally misses this. There's so much amiss in our religious circles today. There's nothing that Jesus did that he had to do for himself. There was nothing that Jesus did that he had to do for himself. This is Daniel's prophecy, chapter 9, verse 25 through 27. Don't go there. But Daniel said he did not come for himself. Jesus didn't come because he needed people to love him. You understand that? He didn't come because somehow he didn't have a big enough reputation. He thought if he laid down his life, then the whole world would love him. Well, really, the whole world didn't love him and still doesn't love him. Jesus didn't come because he had a want or a need. You and I have wants and needs. Jesus came as a substitute for those of us who needed him and those of us who should want him. He came for us. He did not come for himself. Greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. And this is how we know he's our friend because he laid his life down even while we were enemies. Christ died for us. Even while we were rebel enemies, Christ died for us. Everything he did, he did without regard to himself. You can mark everything that Jesus did and go, he did it for me. When the father said, will you go? He said, yes, he did that for me. When the father said the fullness of time has come, all right. He said, okay, I'll be born of a virgin overshadowed by the Holy Ghost in the mystery of the conception and entering into humanity. He did that for me. He stayed in the womb of the virgin for nine months, burying the atmosphere of humanity as a baby in the womb. How vulnerable can you be in a devilish world that was trying to kill him as soon as he be born? He did it for me. And when he came out of the womb, as difficult as that may be, he came out of the womb for me. And on the same day he came out, all of hell was coming after him. He had to submit himself to a mama and a daddy that would run him back down to Egypt for two years until a crazy fool died up there in Jerusalem. He did it for me. I don't know about you, but I know what it's like to be a fugitive under the wrath of God. I know what it's like to be a sinner. I know what it's like to hurt people and want those people to hurt me. Well, I hurt God by living like hell and his justice had every right to hunt me down, hunt me down. I'm so glad he hunted me down in the person of Christ just to tap me on the shoulder and tell me, hold it. You don't have to be worried. It's paid for. Isn't that a good thing? Now, I know I should have been thrown in hell. I know I should have went to jail. But he tapped me on the shoulder and told me somebody already paid your debt. Somebody already did your sentence. You're free to go in Jesus' name. That is the gospel. You're free to go in Jesus' name. That is the gospel. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Don't be excited for him because he understands the point. I'm, I'm always, I'm always, I'm always, listen. I'm always be, I'm befuddled when people can just sit there super cool about what God did for them. I'm, I'm, a, I'm afraid that you still haven't got it. I'm afraid you still haven't got it. I'm afraid you still haven't got it. I'm afraid, I'm afraid some other devil can, gonna come along and make you happier than Jesus. Come on now, say 
Okay, all right. Okay. Oh, no, Pastor. Okay. Okay. Substitution is the work that Christ did. First Peter 2 21 puts it like this. For even hereunto we were called because Christ also what? Suffered for us. Two greatest words after Jesus, after Yeshua, after Jesus, after Jesus is for us. That's the doctrine of substitution. Why did he come? For us. Why did he die? For us. Why did he rise again? Why did he ascend into heaven? Why did he take his place at the right hand of God? Why did he pour out the Holy Ghost upon us? Why is he keeping us every day of us, our lives? Why is he coming back again? In order that we might be with him for all eternity. Greatest words in the Bible and concerning you and me is for us. He did it for us. Absolutely astonishing. Now, let me carry you into a few concepts around the idea of your baptism so we can get at it here in a moment. The believer's baptism constitutes seven things. There are more, but just seven. First, point number one under the believer's baptism, baptism signifies union and identification with Jesus Christ in his death. You guys got that? You're about to look at that emblem with these brothers. Union and identification with Christ in his death. Romans 6 verse 3 gives us explicitly that intimation when Paul says, Know ye not that as many of you were baptized into Jesus Christ, you were baptized into his what? That's what your Bible tells you. Do you not know? That so many of us, boy, what a beautiful phrase that is. See that little word, us? That's what he came for. So many of us as were immersed into Jesus Christ, were immersed into his death. That's what these men are going to symbolize today. They're going to symbolize that they agree that when Christ died, they died too. Y'all got that? That's what Jesus is teaching So this is a glorious picture of union. This can be understood as the idea of two stories coming together. I taught you guys that in the marriage series, right? When a man meets a woman and a woman meets a man, they both have two individual stories. Do they not? They're called life stories. And as they come together, those life stories come together and they join so that they create a common story. Would you agree with that? And every believer has a life story of his own in conjunction with Jesus so that everywhere you go now, you are telling your story through Jesus and you are telling Jesus' story through yours. That's what baptism teaches. It teaches the marriage of the sinner to the Savior. And now y'all go everywhere sharing stories. That's what you do. That's what you do. When you marry Jesus, it's not about you anymore. I, I need to stay right there for a long time. I look around and see all these crazy Christians near and far among us and abroad. And it's wild to me how they just live absolutely for themselves. You can barely hear Jesus out of their mouth ever. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. I'm doing the other thing. I'm going here. I'm going there. I'm, I'm up to this. I'm up to that. I'm saying, where Jesus at? Listen very carefully to me. I can't even tell if you're married. The life story of the believer and the life story of Jesus should come together in a communication that you are constantly reminding men and women that you're married to Jesus. Every time they bump you, you might start with your story, but before it's over with, you're going to be talking about his story. 
Now, what we're talking about here are two life stories that really constitutes two love stories. Didn't I teach y'all that? The love story of God and the sinner. His love for us and our love for him. That's what should come out your mouth every time somebody asks you what really makes you happy. What truly floats your boat? What really constitutes who you are? Where is your real identity? What is your real mission? What's your purpose? Your purpose should be what Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the faithfulness of the Son of God that he yielded, he yielded in order that me and him might be one. Paul says, if you're looking at a brother and you're wondering why I'm happy, I'm happy because I'm in Jesus. I'm married to the son of the living God and he's married to me. That's what it means to be a Christian. But we got a whole bunch of Christians that's playing around, sneaking around like they're single still. They're sneaking around like they're single. And then when somebody, when somebody whispered and said, now, did you know he was married to Jesus? They go, no, no, I, I didn't, no, what? Not what I heard them say just a few minutes ago. Not where I heard them was hanging out last night. Did you see what they was doing? They married to Jesus? Where Jesus at on, on a vacation? Y'all see what I'm saying? This is what I'm saying. Some of y'all better be careful about coming to the water. All right, let me keep it going. Number two, number two, baptism teaches the doctrine of atonement. I told you that by Christ for sinners. Jesus literally said in Luke chapter 12, verse 50, that he was constrained to his baptism. And he wasn't talking about his first baptism. He's talking about the baptism of the cross. Notice what he says. This is what he says. But I have a baptism to be baptized. This is Jesus. Now, he's already been baptized. He's already been in water. He's coming to another baptism, and that is to be immersed into the wrath of God. Remember for whom? For us. And notice what he says. How am I straightened? That's a bad English translation. It should be how am I compelled? How am I driven? How I am locked in? How I am committed to that moment? See, when you love somebody, it'll compel you. It'll drive you. It'll keep you from being distracted. What love of God for us that Christ would bear in his bosom, a need to enter into a suffering that as a human being, he has never, ever experienced. Y'all know the agony. Y'all know the struggle. This wasn't a perfunctory sort of, you know, jot down all of the prophetic points as he gets ready to lay down his head on the cross. He was a real human being with a real struggle with hell with a real struggle of something that no other human being has endured before. Do you know what that was? The putting of all of the sins of all of his people from the beginning of time to the end of time on one person at one time in one place. God poured out all his wrath on him. Now that's a real man that didn't run away from the enemy. That's a real man we learned on Saturday. Real men take up their task because they realize they're living for something greater than themselves. That's what real men do for the joy that was set before him. What was that joy? His daddy's approval and his people's happiness. That's exactly right. 
But I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how am I straightened until it be accomplished? Let's go on then. Not only is the believer's baptism union with Christ, it teaches the doctrine of atonement. We are brought back into union with God by the suffering of Christ. Number three, baptism teaches the doctrine of what? We should be here for a long time. It has to do with the new birth in Christ. But I'll start with John chapter three, verse five, and then we'll go to Titus. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus was completely lost at that point. One of the most reputable theologians of that day could not comprehend the new birth. I would assert to you that Christians are in that place today. A lot of Christians, if you ask them to explain what it means to be born again, they can't do it. They'll tell you, you know, that they were baptized, that they learned doctrine, but they can't tell you what it means to be born again. Because a lot of born again stuff going on in our churches is nothing but a show in the flesh. Like you're not born again because you make a decision for Jesus. You hear that crap all the time. Repeat after me. And then once you repeat, they say, now you're welcome to the family of God. That's the biggest lie on planet Earth. It'll send you to hell in a moment. Because it's works of righteousness, which you have done. And just as you have no capacity to know the moment that you took on physical life in the womb, you have no capacity to know the moment the Spirit of God quickened your soul and placed the incorruptible seed in you and gave you life. You have no way of knowing that moment. You have no way of knowing that moment. You have no way of knowing that moment. The best we can say when people ask you, well, when were you born again? I don't know. I just know I've been born again. Yeah, I don't know because I don't know that secret work that the Holy Ghost does so down deep down inside. The work is complex. You're not just born again because you agree with doctrine. The devils agree with doctrines as well. They believe God better than you and I do. You're not made to be God's child because you can pass doctrinal tests. You're only a child of God when the third person penetrates your heart and begins to do a work of grace to make you a new creature in Christ. And for everybody, it's different. Listen to me. It's different for everybody. Everybody is not a cookie cutter pattern of salvation. Some folk, when this Holy Ghost works, immediately they begin to have a draw and a call to get to know God. Other people are wrestling much more with the complexities and the difficulties of their life. In other words, the Holy Ghost will have an individual become much more aware of their sinful condition. And now they got to wrestle with that sinful condition for weeks, for months. For years. And they're already born again. They don't know it. Because the first work of the spirit is to convince you that you are a sinner. This is why a lot of times when people come to me and say, Pastor, I feel so bad because my children, they just acting crazy and they, they, they're under depression and, and they had fit to be tired. And, and you know, they, they don't know this and they don't know that. And they don't know that. And I say, good, good. Maybe God is working. Good. Because the first work is to convince your child that he's a sinner. Did you hear what I said? And it takes a while before that confession comes out of the mouth. My daughter's first four, I think it's three, first three of my daughters, they were with me all their life until 14, 15, 16 years old. 
They grew up in the gospel. Some of y'all know that. Some of them are here. And uh, they did like a lot of our kids did, just adopt our religion, like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Isaac and Jacob adopted their daddy's religion until they met God for themselves. And finally, when my kids met God for themselves, they were able to, they were able to tell me what I was telling them all their life. I was telling them why they were in the womb. They were in their mama's belly, and I'm telling them, baby girl, you're a sinner. Your daddy's a sinner. Your mama's a sinner. You're a sinner. We need a savior. I'm telling them that in the womb. They wait till they were 17 years old and come to daddy. I'm a sinner. <laughs> I'm a sinner. I said, yeah, I tried to tell you that for 17 years. But until God tells you you're a sinner, you can't know the Savior in his work. And once you know the Savior in his work, it becomes inevitable that you're going to raise his flag and live for his glory. Did y'all understand what I just said? That's, listen, that's what Jesus meant when he said, he said, verily, verily, except a man be born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God, except you be born again. And part of the symbolism of it is the water we're getting ready to deal with. You got to be born of the spirit, and then you have to testify of that by a life committed to Jesus. Just like when the baby comes out the womb, the baby comes out the womb because of blood and water. Y'all hearing what I'm saying? You must be born again. Titus chapter three, verse five. Listen to it. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done. Do you agree with that? So you can have millions of people come to the altar and commit themselves to Jesus. And Jesus say to them on that day, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. The most scary thing in the world is to think that you're saved because of something you do rather than something that God did. The scariest thing in the world, the scariest thing in the world is for you to go around confident that you're saved because you made a decision for Jesus. Did that make some sense? It's important. See, you got to give God glory for saving you. You've got to give him glory for, for saving you. Now, that's, now that's, listen to me. That's going to be the difference between this church and most churches in the Bay Area. I just want you, you most churches you go in the Bay Area, they got a whole plan of salvation for you. But if salvation starts with you, salvation ends with you. And if salvation starts with you, you can lose your salvation. But you can't lose the salvation that God grants you. Because he who has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. If he started it, he will finish it. And when a man or woman is born again, they will never have to ever be born again. You cannot die when God has given you new life. Did you hear me? Did you hear me? Right. It's so important. And see, these are fighting grounds that I'm sharing with you because the baptism thing was a big, big issue in the first century. The Jews didn't like it. They didn't like it, but I told you Jesus and John was saving people in New Testament style while they was in the Old Testament. You got to be bad to do that. With them dagger carrying Pharisees, you got to be bad to be calling men and women to the water instead of to the temple. And they were coming. This is why they hated John and killed him. This is why they hated Jesus and killed him. And this is why every faithful gospel gospel preacher has been hated everywhere in the world. Because what we do not do is let man get the glory for his salvation. 
not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy. That means you don't deserve it. It means you didn't earn it. You didn't merit it. There is none good. No, not one. I'm talking about everybody in the house, especially me. There is none good. No, not one. And it's the moment you can own that, you can be saved. And I'm telling you, the work of the Holy Ghost is to convince you that you are this kind of sinner. That's his goal, to convince you that you are the kind of sinner that you cannot merit anything with God. It's important because what God must do is shut you up to a work that's already done. It's already done. The gospel is done, not do, did, done. Am I making some sense? Done in Jesus' name. And the gift of faith is exactly that. When you discover you can trust God, he gave you that out of your new birth. You were born again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead through faith. As a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. This is the difference between the gospel of God and the gospel of men. Please know it. The reason why our world is going to hell and being turned upside down and transitioned into some crazy thing is because we have abandoned the one true and living God and Jesus whom he has sent. The world cannot be saved without this gospel. It cannot be saved. I tell men and women, when you abandon God for, for racism, you abandon God for, for uh, any other genderism, if you abandon God for socialism, you will abandon the only hope you ever have. No one's going to heaven except sinners. Your problem is you're a sinner. Your problem is not somebody else. This is what God tried to tell Cain. Cain, stop, boy. Go back and offer the right sacrifice and you will do well. Don't be mad at your brother. Because he understood he was a sinner and he brought the right sacrifice. We got people in this world want to hate us because we bring the right sacrifice. They want to take away Jesus and force us to bring our onions and garlic and, and cucumbers to God. Isn't that crazy? It's crazy. I need to stop because it's time. According to his mercy, he saved us. By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. You don't wash yourself. You don't renew yourself. You're getting ready to see that fundamentally this act is a passive act. When they sit in the water, I'm going to plunge them under the water. They will simply submit to the act. When God comes in grace, you learn to submit to him. You submit to him. You submit to him. That's what you do. Faith is submission to God. In every day of your life, you got to learn how to submit to God. God resists the proud, gives grace to the humble. You ought to be excited about it. All I got to do all my life is learn how to submit to God. All my problems come when I don't submit to God. That's what I've discovered. I wake up on a given day and I'm thinking I'm all that. That's when my trouble starts. And God has to continue to remind me without him, I can't do a thing. And if that's true after conversion, it's true at conversion too. The work of the Spirit of God is to convince you that you are a sinner and that Jesus is the only righteous one and that your sins are permanently, eternally put away by his death. What a good persuasion. 
See, the man or the woman that actually believes that their sins are put away in Jesus, that person is going to be happy no, what, no matter what they go through. Deep down in their soul, they're going to have a peace like a river that attends their way. When sorrows and sea billows roll, whatever my lot, God has taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. That's a saved person. Outwardly, he looks crazy, toe up, jacked up, messed up. Inside, God has an equilibrium going on. In Jesus' name, he is the anchor to my soul to keep me in the midst of the storm. And nothing will separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Number three, the doctrine of the, uh, number four, the doctrine of resurrection. Romans 6 verse 4, this here is something that you must also comprehend. There's a day you and I that, are, that we are looking for. It's a day of resurrection. Look at it. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we should walk in newness of life. You guys see that? So you and I are called to a moral, ethical behavior change in light of something coming in the future. We believe in the return of Christ and the resurrection of the body because we believe that it will be an act that will bring us into eternal transformation. We are therefore then confessing this, and I say it to all believers, the spirit has been born again. Your inner man is renewed. Your outer man is still as jacked up as could ever be. God, God paid for both of them. That crazy body of yours, he paid for it. The tension between being simultaneously righteous and sinful, that's your walk. Y'all got that? You are sound and crazy at the same time. Did you get that? Right. In order that God might be to get the glory. So some days you are so logical, so coherent, so rational, so productive in your walking. God, God is using you and you're happy about it. And the next day you just as goofy and stupid and crazy and simple and stuff come out your mouth. And you say, I thought I was over that. Is that true? I thought I was over that. No, you're not quite over it, but you are getting over it every day as you walk in newness of life. Now, the reason that's happening is because God doesn't want you to lie to people about you being perfect. Your perfection is in Christ. It's not in yourself. It's not in yourself. It's in my vouchsafe who is in heaven at the right hand of God and he's anchored to me. So I might be flying around in this world under the winds of trouble, but he will never let me go. And one day he'll come back again. That's the doctrine of resurrection. Baptism is for believers only. Do you see the fifth point? It's for believers only. It's not for unbelievers. And it's not for the children of believers who are unbelievers. This is where, again, in the uh, Protestant churches, we have a major difference with our friends in the Catholic Church and the other churches, even our, our Reformed churches, where they baptize babies. As you're about to see, the reason why it's believers only is because that's what the Bible says. Listen to Mark 16, verse 16. Notice what it says. In Mark 16, verse 16, he that believeth and is baptized shall be what? It didn't say he that believeth for you. Your mama can't believe for your child. Your, your daddy can't believe for the child. The child has to believe for themselves. Did y'all hear what I just said? Ah, I know this hurts. But I get the question quite frequently. Can I be somebody's God daddy? 
and God mama. Well, yeah, you, you, you can, but you're a poor representation of God. <laughs> Listen to me, I know. Baptism got to hurt a little bit, so it's going to hurt. I, I need somebody to be the godparents to my kids. How about God being the godparents to your kids? How about you being the godparents to your own kids? This is where church seeks to steal God's glory. I love my Catholic brethren because half of them, if they read their Bible, they're going to get really, truly saved. And that's why 40, 50 percent of them are at grace. And the Catholic Church has taken their Bible from them for years so that they don't believe that Jesus is sufficient. But the reality is, is that the Godparent thing is nowhere found in the Bible. Now, if anything is equitable and what I would consider fair balance is that men and women that are going to have children, make sure you raise your children up around other people that are raising their children up in the fear and the nurture of the Lord. And we can all be each other's Godparents. Did that make some sense? Right. We can all be each other's godparents. I mean, you raise your kids up around me. I'm going to help them be right. Now, when you get stupid, I'm going to tell them your mom and daddy's stupid. Don't worry about it. They're they're stupid. But you're going to be stupid sometime, too. And when you be stupid, they're going to come pray for you. And and this is how we become godparents to each other. But this official thing of godparent and all that, please. Sometimes the godparents y'all want are going to be worse than you. How they going to help your kids if they worse than you? You see the farce of it? Often what we're doing, I'm going to stop here. Often what we're doing is passing off our duties. Passing off our duties. I need you to help me raise my kids. Did you help them? Did they help you have those kids? (laughs) Did they help you have those kids? Were they there when you labored with that hard head, big old head baby boy? Right? (laughs) No, they weren't there. No, they weren't there. No, you need God to help you. Let the Holy Ghost be the Godparent in the house to all y'all. Does that make some sense? Now, again, I'm getting ready to close here. We're going to love each other. This is what we teach our children. You grow up in a community of faith where people take God serious and they're going to be there for you. We are going to be there for each other, particularly with kids, because they did not ask to come to this crazy world. They didn't ask to come. I'm going to help raise your kids, even when you get stupid, because they didn't ask to come. And the same with mine. This is how we share in the burden of the gospel. And there's finally one more. Baptism is a confession of faith rooted in a clear conscience. That's 1 Peter 3, 11. It's rooted in a clear conscience. Listen to what Peter said. This is why we don't, we don't allow for children to get baptized because they don't know what they're talking about. Listen, this is 1 Peter chapter 2, verse, uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, please. Listen to it. This is how this goes. This is very important for you to capture Baptism, the life figure whereunto also now does save us, not the putting away of the flesh, but the answer of a what? Good conscience toward God. Stop that. When these men come up in the water, they are responding. That's what the word answer means. Remember what I told you earlier? God says, I do. And then you go, I do too. When they come into the water, they're responding to that. Baptism is a response of a conscience that is clear 
that you are a sinner saved by the grace of God and that the merits of Christ's death secures you in your walk with God for all eternity. Did you get that? Is you're saying to the world, I'm responding to the testimony of the gospel in my heart. And, and now they're seeing the two stories come together. The two stories are coming together. Little children can't do that yet. And they don't have to. They're covered. Until it's time for them to actually confess for themselves. I know that's going to make some of y'all mad too. But little children that aren't able to know their right hand from their left are not going to hell. If they die before they have an opportunity to confess faith, it's because they were chosen in Christ. God is Lord over every death in the universe. Every baby that dies, God knows about. Can you imagine the absurdity and monstrous nature of the judgment of God taking a little baby and bringing him before his judgment and condemning him for something he couldn't possibly know? This is how stupid religion is. Now, I'm going to still have some brothers talk crazy to me like that, but they're going to have to answer to God when they depict the judgment seat of God as some kind of bloody monster that's throwing people in the hell. Let me close the knot one more time by this. When we say that babies who are not able to affirm or bring clarity to their volitional choices are going to be absolved from the judgment because they were placed in Christ, before they even came into the world, like millions of aborted babies. What I am saying is your salvation is not based upon your works. It's not based upon your confession of faith. It's based upon Christ having chosen you in him before the world began. That makes all the sense in the world to me. Does that make any sense? All the sense in the world. All right, it's time. It's time. We're baptizing men today because we want them to be real men from here on out. The first baptism that we want to have is the baptism of my little young brother, Mr. Fraher. Come on, young man. Come on. Yeah. You can climb on in the water. Yeah. Come on up here and take a picture of him. This is a special moment, ladies and gentlemen. You should be praying that your sons come up here next. You should be praying that God is working in their heart. This is what God is doing everywhere around the world, privately and secretly, where the gospel is preached. A lot of people are going to hell, but a lot of people are going to heaven too. Tell us your name, young man. Uh, Philip Fair. Philip. Yes, sir. Do you trust Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Yes, sir. Do you believe that when Christ died, he died for all of your sins, past, present, and future? Yes, sir. You believe that when Jesus comes back again, he's coming back to take you to be with him for all eternity? Yes, sir. Then you are permitted to be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. <laughs> Come on, boy. Yeah, give me your hand. Yeah.
You can, you can go, take him in the back and help him dry off. You can go into my dressing room. <laughs>